Welcome to Conversations With. My name is Shaley Hugendorn and I live with Bipolar 2 Disorder. Sharing with others is healing both individually and collectively. Sharing our stories will educate others, bring more understanding, shed more light and smash more stigma. Our voices need to be heard. Our stories aren't over yet. This is Bipolar. Hi everyone, welcome back to This is Bipolar. I am Shaley Hugendort. I'm a mom, I'm a wife, I'm a mental illness advocate, and I live with Bipolar 2 disorder. I am coming from Canada. And I come from the Coast Salish Territory, which is also known as Vancouver. And I'm very excited today because I have a longtime follower, interactor, someone that I feel is my internet friend, Warimu. And she has come here from Kenya, correct? Yes. Yes. And I am going to get her to introduce herself and she will tell us what she would love us to know about her and what she does. No pressure at all. No pressure at <laughs> no all. Pressure, no all. pressure. No pressure. Okay, so just, <laughs> just a few thousand people watching. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so my name is Werimondomo. I am a psychoeducator living in Kenya, Nairobi, Kenya. I uh, spend a lot of my time just providing resources and information to people living with mental illness, uh, learning how to navigate relationships with practitioners, self-advocacy around medications. It's a massive gap over here. I um, mean, just, just making people validating symptoms, separate mental illness being separate from just mental health. Uh, aside from that, I work for a fintech company called Tulix. Shout out to Brian and Alistair. Uh, I work in <laughs> marketing and custom. I handle the marketing and customer success. Uh, I've also recently started two amazing projects. Um, as a result of spending so much time with my founders and my work as a psychoeducator, I started speaking to teens, just you know, encourage, just helping them build out a founder mindset. Because when you're working for a startup, small teams require a lot of like self-driven kind of energy from employees. So I started speaking to teams. I had my second talk last week, nerve-wracking, but I loved it. It's those spaces where I'm able to share my diagnosis um, alongside the work that I do, just to create more visibility for people living with mental illness in the workplace. Then lastly, I just announced uh, my, my partnership or my that I'm part of the Natrella Wellness Network. Natrella is a mental health tech uh, in Kenya that focuses on self-care. So as part of the wellness network, I am a mental illness support buddy. So just now working more one-on-one -on -one with some of the people who follow me to help them, you know, just maximize sessions. Because surely, you know, we will spend money on therapists and doctors. And sometimes we don't get what we need, but we paid all that money. Yeah. And you're coming home to do your own research or to suffer from side effects. And you didn't even know that's a thing, right? Yeah. So those, yeah. that's that's everything that I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, not very much things. Just <laughs> Not a lot, not a lot. Just yeah. four, nothing much. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Wow, you are doing amazing work. That I I want to hear more about that for sure. I would mm -hmm. love to start with hearing about you. I would mm -hmm. love to hear about um when did you did you notice as a child, as a teen, when did you notice something might just have been a little bit different or did you or did someone else? How did that how did your, um, you know, coming to diagnosis uh, happen? 
happen. Amazing. It's a great question. Um, I don't know which illness should I start with. <laughs> That's a real question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which illness should I start with? Uh, maybe I should point out I'm living with bipolar type two, ADHD, uh, anxiety, mostly panic attacks, and complex trauma. So. Uh, I noticed that there was, uh, my brain was different when I was six. Um, wow. I remember I was in school uh, and I, well, maybe six, seven, but I was in school and I remember I had uh, just started, well, here it's primary school, so we call it class one. I guess I would be grade one on your side. Okay. Uh, but anyway, okay. I, I was in school and I noticed, um, I don't know how to explain this, but it was like a chasm in my mind. And I really loved books. I loved reading and I, and I enjoyed, I already knew I enjoyed academia, but it was, I just felt it was hard. There's a, there's a place I couldn't reach into. And I felt that there was a limitation that wasn't regular. It wasn't that I don't love reading. It wasn't that, um, well, not that school was hard. It was because I had a neurodivergent brain, but I just noticed that there was something wrong. And I was like, wow, I really love academia and I need academia to succeed and get the jobs that I want in the future. I'm seven at the time. So I was like, I really need to figure out what this is. And I'll push through, I'll figure it out. So that involved kind of adapting to the system. We did a lot of um, ABCs, the exams were multiple choice. So okay. I struggled to sit still long enough to read. It would make me so anxious, like anxious to the point of crying. And I didn't know what was going on, but I just couldn't sit still and like read through, you know, maybe re revise and all that stuff. So I decided since I can't read, I'll just focus on being brilliant at exams. And with multiple choice, I just started studying exams instead. So of course I'm not good at first, but I learned how, like probability in a way, really? I figured out how to just, yeah, how to work with multiple choice to figure, predict kind of an answer. And when you do that a lot and you have yeah. eight years of those kinds of exams, I remember after my, that was class one, two-ish, then I went like from position 23 to like overall one in like one exam. Wow. <laughs> one out of like 170 kids, right? But it was now working with work, acknowledging there was something going on with my brain and learning how to work in a different way. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of continued. But again, there was, I can understand how that was ADHD and a lot of anxiety. Like, I mean, you know, later on in life, I started getting panic attacks. So I, I really think, you know, even when people say, you know, you're just worried, work on your trauma, you know, relax, you know, take thought baths. Like, I mean, relax. like it, when in right? the world <laughs> of telling someone to relax has helped them relax. That's so true. And, and again, that's why I like to really make this distinction. I understand that people may not be comfortable with their term mental illness, but the reason I want to say I even like love and appreciate that it, it exists is that we're not all under them. Everyone has to manage their mental health, but not yeah. everyone is living with mental illness. Yeah. And if we all try to loop in our experiences, it's like saying, oh, I'm struggling with my diet, but you don't have to cub count every day. You're not injecting insulin every day. That person cannot take a break from, you know, it's like, oh, you've been too disciplined. Like it's a weekend. Stop injecting insulin, yeah. right? you can't do that and the same thing for us it's kind of like we're monitoring ourselves 24 7 because that episode with the episode that kind of is a wrecking ball right yeah so anyway so yeah I, I would say that's the introduction that's kind of when I noticed my brain was different so severe ADHD and and and, and anxiety at the time there weren't panic attacks but it was really bad it made it hard to study so all I had were my exams and I got really good at taking exams thankfully wow. there were a lot of them in the first yeah. eight years yeah, that's yeah. so interesting because I actually would prefer to write things out because I feel like the multiple choice, I feel like it's trying to trick me. And I'm thinking mm. so much about that, that I can't get the information. And I remember 
even though it was the ones that like computers marked, like it wouldn't mm-hmm. matter if I wrote on it just for my own self, I would write. Yeah. <laughs> it was so, yeah, those stressed me out so much. For some people listening, I know that we also have a lot of parents listening as well. Could mm-hmm. you, and I love that you had that self-awareness so mm-hmm. young. My teacher yeah. heart is like <laughs> so so wishing that I you could have been in my class and I would have seen and I would have been able to help you but um I'm wondering could you describe because I know people throw around panic attack and anxiety Mm. attack and just because Mm. our language has kind of been like co-opted as Mm. you know regular language could you describe in your body or what it feels like in your mind when you mm-hmm. had a panic attack, maybe if you remember when mm-hmm. you're little, mm-hmm. um, maybe if when you still experience it now, mm-hmm. I would just love to share that with our listeners. Mm, I love that. I love that question. And I, and I love that you said they've been co-opted because that's so true. That is so true, right? Um, so maybe let me start with the panic attack. Uh, when I was younger, when I was younger, I want to say it hadn't gone into a full-blown panic attack. So I'll tell you one when I was younger and when now I had my I first one when I was older. Yes. Yeah, so when I was younger, it would be, Hmm. My, my symptoms have always been physical, by the way. It, it's not usually like worry. It's literally almost becoming paralysis, right? Yeah. So I really talk a lot about understanding, now that I have comorbidity, it's understanding, kind of put the illnesses in a circle. And maybe DHD is here, complex trauma, anxiety, bipolar. I, I try to understand what's triggering what in that particular instance. So I've trained myself to know this is happening because of this. Sometimes it's standalone. So now most of the time, my anxiety at this point is coming in because if I struggle to read, you know, I wish I was where I was right now because I'd be like, listen, my exams are my strength. I'm going to focus on that. But even then I was feeling guilty, like I don't read before exams and I still do well and I'm still the best in, in my class, at the top of my class. So I'd start to really worry and I'm like, okay, I'm not good. So something is wrong with me. And then I just start to, you know, hyper. for me, it's like, uh, what is it called? My, like a racing heart in a way, yeah. kind of, you know, heavy breathing. Um, and so I, you know, I, I'll often be like, you know, this kind of holding myself, kind of holding myself together. So lots of that. It happened more frequently when I was younger, quite frequently, because again, exams are pretty frequent. You're a teacher, you know this. Yeah. Um, well, you know what? In North America, yeah. we've moved really far away, especially mm-hmm. um, in uh, younger grades from tests. It's a lot of projects, self-reflection. You would have loved it. You would have loved, yeah. loved it. You would have loved it. In fact, we're in some of the areas and in the district I work in, we don't even do um, letter grades until later. So you'll wow. move with your family and show your work and, and whatever. I think you would have flourished. Okay. Keep going. Okay, cool. <laughs> I love that. I love that. We'll, we'll definitely keep talking about it because those are some of the accommodations I think that are needed in terms of because yeah. a lot of kids, I mean, there are a lot of kids would benefit from that. Um, um, and even the ones who don't have ADHD would benefit from that. Exactly. You know, it's not just accommodation, it's just inclusion and, and a better educational experience, right? So that's when I was younger, I would say more frequent because exams are a lot. Now, when I was, when I'm older, I had my first panic attack. And again, this was kind of me validating myself that it's really, most of the time, it's really physical. It's not in my mind per se. And when it starts, it's just going on. It's kind of like how when you start having hypomania, like, you know, you're on the road. <laughs> you can't, you can't quite like stop it. It's just no, kind of like going a track it. and it's like, there's no, there's, it's very hard to find a way off. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So now with the panic attack, I remember I'd had like a, a tough conversation with one of my lecturers. I was in school at the time. I think it was in my second or third year. 
and it didn't go so well. And and I, it was an exam. I think I was trying to reset. That was a difficult semester, by the way, because of bipolar oh. and so many other things. But the point was that was a tough conversation, and it just kind of made me start to you know hyperventilate again. And yeah. I remember I was walking from one building to the next, and I was walking along a path in school, and the ground was spinning. Right. Oh, wow. So I'm walking, and I'm feeling like you know the ground is spinning, and I'm kind of trying to stay focused long enough to like at least get to the washroom in 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 yeah. the, the that was where my next class was so the ground is spinning that's the first time this is happening and I kind of have to hold it together so I don't fall so I don't fall down yeah. on the way there yeah and and of course the the I mean it's it gets really bad I'm just like I think my heart is gonna pump out of my chest and there's a shortness of breath and if it stays a bit too long I'm, I'm gonna start having a headache you know I'm crying so I just went to the washroom and I just you know kind of just went through it and just let it happen um and after crying I remember even took a photo of myself I'm sure it's on google photos somewhere um yeah so I finished crying and I went to class okay wow <laughs> so, yeah that was a funny that's wow so you just you you just let it go through yep that must have been really scary did you think really uh uh-huh just ask did you think that like did you know this is a panic attack or were you like am I having a like I know a lot of people go to emerge like I'm having Mm. a heart attack like did you Mm. were you did you kind of are were you kind of aware or were you just like so overwhelmed with your symptoms like I just need to sit Mm. down so something interesting that uh, I've, I've come to realize, and I guess you're also realizing that, because of the self-awareness I had when I was very young, I didn't have the language panic attacks, I didn't have ADHD, but I knew something was wrong, and I knew it now that it wasn't my fault, it was just illness. You see, I had asthma when I was very young, it started when I was six. Asthma, again, it's a chronic illness that's a not even a bit more accepted. It's expected, you know, to some extent when you're that young. So I saw, you know, I taken to hospital. There were no questions. No one was debating. He said, asthma, is it not? Does she need medication? He was like, no, it's getting worse. Get on an inhaler. No, she needs admission, right? No one ever questioned. In fact, I got, you know, all around care. So for me, I was like, this is an illness. It's not a you know, reflection on who I am. I, I don't know how I got like a, at least a foundational kind of self-acceptance, I would say. Uh, so that built up. Um, internally, I don't think I started with stigma myself. It, it, later on, it came because of external, but there was a foundational kind of, I recognized there was something wrong and I started learning how to manage it. A bit difficult. The things that I put in place, well, I was seeing little things working. Think of it like a longitudinal study for 20 years, right? Yeah. So it started early on. So there's a way I just knew this is part of that thing. It's part of yeah. that mental illness thing so it makes me less afraid and so for me one of my I think two pillars around management is acceptance acceptance is a huge part for me it's like nothing personal and I accept what's going on let's focus on dealing with it it makes it so hard for other people to stigmatize you by the way you know because people want to see you scared questioning begging for them to love you and believe you and I was like no uh there's something going on I don't have the words right now but internally, I will not stigmatize myself. I've been dealing with this for X amount of years. So this yeah. is going on. So I think that really helped me. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. I mean, I'm still working on that. You were little, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, really, really powerful. And you know what? I love that you said that. I'm always thinking, I mean, not so much anymore, but before pre-diagnosis and maybe just in the beginning, it was always, I always thought there had to be bipolar felt so big or my mental illness felt mm. so big that it felt like there needed to be giant solutions 
Do you know mm. what I mean? But so yep. when you say acceptance, it's like, mm. it's like, it, it sounds too easy, but it's so <laughs> hard, exactly. right? Yeah. And I see it over and over again and within myself and with others, just this, mm. um, you know, like, when can I get off medication? When am mm. I going to, we get so focused on not mm. being, you know, and not having bipolar, <laughs> the symptoms that we have. Yeah. And yeah, not having yeah. a disorder that it actually mm. holds us back from treating the disorder. I like that. I like to say you can't manage what you don't know. And yeah. you, you, you cannot manage also what, you know, it's, hey, is it there? Is it there? Is it real? You're pretending. Yours is, you know, situational depression. Is it not? Is it really mania or are you stressed? Like (laughs) it's confusing and it wastes your time. Yeah. Well, and I find my biggest um, waste, uh, you know, like waste of time. And I mean, I had to go through my journey, but Mm. this whole idea of trying to figure out what is uh, bipolar, Mm. what is Shaylee? Mm. It's so Mm. intertwined. I'm not saying Mm. I am. It's true. I, I'm not, I am not my bipolar. I have mm-hmm. bipolar, but yeah. because it's your brain, it's so intertwined. Mm-hmm. Like, is that really me? Mm-hmm. Instead of just being like, okay, this is happening. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. strategies can I put into place? What can mm-hmm. I do? I would just mm-hmm. spend so much tra- time trying mm-hmm. to figure things out. So I try to encourage people like, just mm-hmm. let's not think about what if you have to be on the medication forever? Is it mm-hmm. helping? Is it helping? Mm. Well, then maybe mm. instead of trying to think about when am I going to get off, right? Or mm. when am I going to, it, it, it's so hard to do, but just that mm. shift in thinking mm. really helped me get on my healing journey. So I love that you don't like mm. that you didn't self-stigmatize. That's amazing. Mm. That's yeah. Amazing. But let me at least share two stories um, to yes. show you when the stigma did come in early on, like foundationally before anyone knew. Yes. Um, I think I was okay, but now I'll tell you about like uh, uh, how stigma now affected me and how I've been navigating that. But mm-hmm. maybe to just uh, provide that tip that I used when I yeah. got my formal diagnosis in 2020 around the personality versus the illness. So I dumped the DSM-5 symptoms for, say, for everything, hypomania, depression, anxiety, ADHD, I, I complex trauma, I dumped everything into individual documents. And particular, in particular for bipolar, just as you said, for me, there's some overlapping, like the symptoms, like around maybe yeah. racing thoughts, like uh, motor-driven activity, which now for me would be like voracious reading. I'm, I'm, I'm a nerd when I'm not, even when I'm stable, even when I'm in a, you know, I'm such an like a lot of my symptoms kind of mirror who I am even when I'm not the hypomanic ones yeah. and unfortunately yeah. I've seen them kind of being used to invalidate you know my opinions the activism all that stuff like generally the things I'm interested in could really be like is that not hypomania right so yeah. so when I was writing down my symptoms I decided I will write my personality first what I believe is my personality then the presentation of that specific symptom. So think of hypomania. If there are 10 symptoms that DSM-5, I was looking at them before this call, but let's say there are 10. I have a symptom. I have my personality first, what I believe to be my personality, then the symptom, then a management tip. And I did that for all 10 symptoms for now hypomania, depression, ADHD, anxiety. So that at each time I'm able to see, okay, yeah. If there are little changes, if there are little changes, you know, over a period of time, I'm like, yeah, that's happening. But also, this is something that I decided to do after now I started experiencing external stigma and what it was doing. I was like, how do I respond? And remember, I'm the one in charge. You're not carrying this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? right. You can say all you want to say, but you're not the one who's living with it at the end of the day. You're not taking the meds. So your opinion is really, it's not high up there. But this is how I came to that. 
So yeah. I think the time I was 12 or 13, I think um, someone close to me started experiencing symptoms and I could quickly tell again, I, di- I didn't have the language of bipolar depression and all that, but I knew this was depression, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I knew, and there were all that. at that point, I hadn't had like my heavy onset when I was 15. Um, like that's when there was a proper onset of depression for bipolar. But maybe I'd been going through some kind of pediatric bipolar, I think, because I've had pressured speech for the longest time. That started even when I was like eight or seven, wow. uh, seven or eight, right? Yeah. Pressured speech for sure and some racing thoughts because I spoke as fast as I was thinking. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. That's something, yeah, that's not something that's happening that's right fast, now. That's fast, right? I'm the right? same. It was really fast. People are like, yeah. what? what? What I'm like, oh, did I skip something? <laughs> Wait, can't you keep up and everywhere with yeah, like, no, like, you know, you're talking too fast. You're talking too fast. Yeah. But so yeah, someone around me, and you know, I spoke up for them. I was very young. I was 12 or 13 at the time. I had just finished representing um Kenya Girl, <clears throat> Kenya Girls Association in a forum to NFGM. So, you know, I, I really knew when I was younger, I don't have money. I may not be able to see a practitioner. I don't know all these things, but I can work on shaping my voice. I can make it really loud because I'm always going to need it to overcome stigma. But now that's what's kind of, you know, you start talking, you start saying, hey, address this, this is depression. And then, you know, the the you know the, the look sometimes and the, you know, you're talking about something really uncomfortable. And now to just start to give you context around stigma um, in my area. I mean, it's taboo, like it's don't talk about, it's like don't talk about it or you're bringing shame on the community, on your family, stuff like that. So there's so much of this, but it's like, oh, but I, but I go to hospital for asthma and it's like, in fact, rush her to hospital, get nebulized. I was being nebulized so much. Let me tell you, I had such bad asthma, but there was no question around my, my need for consistent around the clock treatment. It was very bad, right? But not for these other things. So I think I was confused, like why? Yeah, why I mean, is it this way well. for this and not this? Yeah. Totally. Yeah, but 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 yeah, but I started, you know, freaking out a little bit, like just feeling like, oh, there's something wrong. Like, you know, the people don't want to talk about it. And so I'm continuing to do it. And sometimes even silence is deafening. Silence can make you question. Sometimes it's not that stop talking about that stuff, you're humiliating us. It's the rea- the zero reaction, right? That can yeah. also kind of make you feel, did I did I make a mistake? And when you start to speak and you feel like your voice is the loudest, you start to think maybe I'm crazy, right? Oh, um, and I think that's around that time I started feeling like that. Um, and the build up, I mean, even when I was in high school and I, I, you know, had my, I went into that, you know, I think I had my first depressive episode when I was like 15, 15, yeah. I remember. Um, and then I, I had my first attempt, like now the following year, like I think six, four, five months later, I remember, you know, the reaction was also kind of like, yeah, you know, you'll get through this and, not, not from a clinical stance. It's like, you know, just, you know, you, what you need to do is be happy. <laughs> what yeah. you need to do yeah. is be happy, easy right? Easy, easy peasy. Yeah, right? yeah. It was, it was like, I have to gather myself very quickly and not be symptomatic at all. Like I have to gather myself quickly. And so this thing did start to, you know, uh, chip away a little bit at the confidence I had earlier on. You know, it was just me and my brain. Um, me and my brain knowing we're not okay, let's work this through. Other people see you getting very strong grades, but they don't need to know, you know, I don't need to disclose. But I always say like, it was, it's been easy to mask ADHD, anxiety, these things that, and I'm saying easy very loosely because I know it's not the case for so many people. For yeah. me, it, it just happened to, to work out, to be able to do that, to be, you know, stellar with grades, but really knowing, oh, there's a lot of stuff happening in the background. But I always say, like, I mean, bipolar came in like a wrecking ball, okay? <laughs> it, it just made it so hard to mask. It made it, made it a lot harder, especially in the early years, 15 to 18. I was in high school. I was in boarding school at the time. Over time, I learned how to mask it. Um, 
but when it was starting, it was like, man, like we were doing so good. We were chronically ill, but like we were doing so good. No one knew about it. <laughs> no one knew about it, but now it's out there. And that's unfortunate because it is reinforcing shame, by the way, it, it's making you feel like you shouldn't have this. And again, you see that confusion between, you know, she has asthma. Everyone knew that. Even teachers knew when I, you know, I, I was admitted in hospital and I had to come back. It's like, no, we get it, you know? Yeah. But this other thing is like, it's stifled in so much shame and silence. And there's this, one thing that I've come to really dislike is, is the way, well, dislike is, you know, I'm putting it lightly, but there's this apparent lack of information. There's a, there's a false notion that there's no information, but there were psychiatrists at that time, right? There were psychologists at the time, but it's, that's how deafening the silence is, not even willing to consider, is there a treatment for this? Because it's not legitimized as chronic illness. And so I think those things really um, kind of hit me hard because um, I was really trying to move with like a science-based approach, even though I had not encountered the terms neuropsychology and you yeah. know, psychopharmacology, some of my favorite terms right now. I didn't encounter them. <laughs> They're favorite my faves. terms. Favorite They're terms. They're my faves. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think me trying to approach it from that scientific stance, and then the reaction is so you know, small stigma. There's a mix of misinformation, but also kind of just denial. Those were things that <clears throat> really affected my confidence. I wanted to say, and how did I navigate that? Um, I don't know if this is the part where I tell you the, the, the course of my illness because I feel like yeah. I've talked too Let's much. Let's do it. No, we can talk okay. about whatever we want. It's my podcast. You go. I love that. <laughs> cool, cool. Because, yeah, the journey of stigma. So, anyway, maybe talking about, well, well, the first year, so like I'm seven to like 14 at this time, we have that big national exam that determines your entire future and where you go really? to high school. Yeah, it's a big so exam. What, tell me just a quick, as a teacher, about that. So, you take this yeah. big exam and it, yeah. so it tells you where you can go to school or what? For high school, yeah. I, I know the education system has changed a little bit, but let me tell you about it in my time. Yeah, I want to. So, it's called the 844. It's, uh, it's called the, eight, the 844 system. So, the first eight years are in primary school. And again, and I think that's your your elementary I think yeah. grade one through yeah so it's primary school so it's eight years in primary school then in class eight you do a national exam like the whole country does the exam and then based on those grades you'll be placed in a school in either a national school or provincial school but you'll be placed somewhere um then yeah you don't have to go you could go to a private school but the placements are in public schools and okay. for majority of Kenyans I mean not everyone can afford private yeah. private education so you're probably gonna go um wherever you select schools just before you yeah. sit your exam so you're kind of in the you're kind of in the neighborhood of the schools you might end up in but um okay. yeah you do get so called to school. what if it's not so you have to go away from your parents Boarding school is a very normal thing over here. If your parents don't want you to, you they'll probably take you to a private school. But right. if you know, but boarding school is more the norm rather than the than the exception. Yeah, it's a pretty normal. Um, I didn't even know that. Well, did I know boarding schools? I don't remember. I mean, it was always gonna be a boarding school. So yeah, yeah, yeah so you yeah. do go away from you do go away from home. I'm I mean, especially so... if you're going to a national school. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so curious. I mean, I know it's you know that's how things work. Um, yeah. In, in different places and so but I I'm curious about how you know as a teacher and a mom how that how that affects a child right mm, like just yeah. in your most like your most formative awkward teenage mm. years to not have that home home base right as mm -hmm. nice as everybody is there they're not mm -hmm. they're not your family wow okay I digress I'm, no we're gonna have a whole different school conversation because <laughs> I'm so fascinated 
Oh, and that's so no, cool. No pressure. You have this entire mm. exam that's going to, uh, like, what? How did you, <laughs> how did you deal with that? How did it go? Tell me more. So, so that's such a good question because um, now, you know, I, I can reflect back not from the, you know, Weimo the top A student, but from Weimo the, you know, symptomatic child going through ADHD yeah. and anxiety. So just as you've described, I mean, I still wasn't reading before exam. <laughs> Not even, not even that exam made me feel like, oh yeah, we're gonna sit still and maybe try to read. I used to go to bed after those exams, but um, what happened? I remember I got a tutor maybe when I was around eleven or twelve, and I mean, thanks to them, I started doing better like in some subjects because I, I would fluctuate. Sometimes I'd be really great in certain subjects and. Like when I do an exam, like there are five subjects and I'm like really great grades in like four, then one really jarring, not so good yeah. grade. So, you know, teachers are getting disappointed because already they couldn't place me in one subject. Wow. Um, couldn't really place me in one subject, but then I wasn't very predictable in all. Maybe English. English was the one you could be like, oh yeah, she's going to do good. But the other ones you could never tell. So it was exciting for them because it's like, oh, wonder kid. But then it's like, why are you failing simple questions? <laughs> yeah. I used to fail writing words, like for math, I used to fail writing words a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But but anyway, now when we, as we move to, you know, the final class, I, you know, there's just that guilt I'd have. I don't read for exams. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fraud. I'm, you know, all that stuff. I don't necessarily read as much. What I would do though is try to listen. Like every time I listen in class, just inter- attentively, I wouldn't need to read again, right? Because the questions have also been repetitive. You know, you're just accumulating knowledge, class five, class six. By the time you get into class eight, you just need, you got good with two, three, you're just building up knowledge. So if you do a lot of exams, you do master some things. But now the exam is here. I remember I was very anxious. Like I'd be very anxious as usual, as per usual, before an exam, very tense. But there's a pep talk or a place I used to go to in my head. I'm like, okay, we've got this, we've got this. And then I see for my exams. But even after I finished, I remember for my science paper, I was already spooked and I didn't even do I didn't do as well as, as I could have on that paper. I, I guess I knew. Um, but well is relative because I was still among the best, but there's an expectation for it. But you're usually good at everything, right? But oh. I panicked for that paper. Uh, but for the other ones, I was like, okay, yeah, let's do them. But I was going to bed. And I remember after I finished, now we're waiting for results. It takes about like back then, I think it was like two or three months. I don't remember. But I remember thinking I have failed and being anxious for like three days straight. I was like, I failed. Um, I didn't even get a good grade. And then in as much as, yes, I was, you know, among the, used to be, have been among the top because of fluctuating, the times I fluctuated, I'd go from like 350 out of 500, like 400 out of 500 and back down and, you know, stuff like that. I was like, this is going to happen for sure. Like for sure, I, KCP will expose me. And so I was very, very anxious. And I was like, hey, guys, I know you guys are expecting me to do well, but it's not going to be good. And then I come and I make the best in my school, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That sounds like so much pressure. Like, I'm like, I'm like anxious for your little self. <laughs> yeah. So pressure. Okay. So then you go to the school mm-hmm. and then are you like, when do your mood disorder bipolar symptoms when does that start was there a big break was it gradual tell me that story wow um it, it's nice as i said i feel like you're just a good person to talk to because as i have this conversation i'm feeling like i'm a patient you know i'm just oh. I'm not a psychoeducator. i'm not everything you know that i lead yeah. with it, it feels really good so thank you oh. 
Um, so, wow, high school is where actually bipolar set in. But what happened, we've switched, we've now switched to a different education system. In, well, not a different education system, but the format of examine, exa being examined and studying has changed. So no more, no more multiple choice. That's gone. Oh, now no, you have to that's actually- That's what you loved and were good at. Exactly. And, and it's what I learned. I adapted to that system, you know. Um, I wasn't even good at it at first, but it was like, ADHD work with the brain, you just know you need the grades that adapt. Now we've moved to a different type. Now you have to fill in these, you know, long, long questions, questions with long answers. So you actually have to read, okay? <laughs> you have to remember text. Yeah. And this time you've moved from five subjects in school to 12 subjects, okay? To 12 subjects. Um, <laughs> so there's a lot more reading to do. And I wasn't used to reading, okay? So that that already and then the adjustment to of course going to a boarding school um that's a that's a new change well now when i think about it i was like of course i was gonna you know the onset of bipolar was nine um but there was a lot of change uh and i remember i got to class remember my strength i felt it was my strength this is the one thing i'm good at i'm good at passing my exams that's gone so this is a lot happening and i kind of watched myself from the because now we have three terms it used to be one year so there are three terms every four months new someone to entry so I watched myself gradually go from like an A and B minus coming down and by the time I was moving towards the end of the year, I think I was at a B minus or something so this was really hard I mean this is such a shift in multiple ways but more so my my self-confidence or my identity was kind of rooted in at least I figured out how to manage this and remember the, the the exams I was doing well at like first of all it was a good confidence booster I did love learning so it felt nice but I was still managing multiple illness I had very chronic asthma and then I have all this other stuff that don't have I don't have the names to yet so it's not like my life was pretty amazing well I was sick like I, I'm okay yeah. saying that like it was a lot <laughs> it yeah. was a lot so now we've come here and and it's like wow my grades are gone so that's a really big like like a shift and I remember when September hit I, I described the onset of depression as like just imagine people are walking you know we're all walking around and the sky is you know it's clear right now if it if it's clear we all feel the sun if it rains we all feel the rain at the same time right we're all so I describe um the onset of depression was like the, a cloud sat on my head. Like I had my own personal cloud. It sat in and it's never left, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it just stayed there with me. And I, I felt the difference. I mean, I, I know people, you know, like to be like, yeah, I've been depressed before it resolved. I'm like, you, you don't understand. You don't understand when it's chronic. You don't understand when it's an illness. It's like the way you don't understand unless you've broken your arm. You know, you can't say even me, you know, I twisted my arm. <laughs> Yeah. Even well, I think that's why it gets complicated and it's so misunderstood because because of of language, right? Like mm. we, being sad about something mm. doesn't mean depression. Being, yeah. you know, like there's situational depression, but mm -hmm. uh, like you said, I've never broken my arm, so I am going to mm. believe whoever had a broken mm. arm, I'm going to believe mm. every symptom they they tell me because I don't have mm. that experience. But I mm. think even neurotypical folks or mm. folks that don't have mental illness, you mm. know, have ex slight experiences that they that they might think are the same. And it isn't mm. like because, because someone isn't mean yeah. or anything. Yeah. But I think we really, and I love by telling stories with this podcast and the advocacy mm. that I do is to, to tell stories to show the difference because mm. it actually 
is upsetting and triggering to me when someone's like, oh, I know how you feel. And you know that mm. they don't, I feel like it just shuts my, my whole experience down and chances yeah. are like, I I'll, I'll just stop, stop talking about it. Not so mm. much anymore. Cause I talk about mm. it everywhere, but mm. before it would just like, oh, that person isn't safe, mm. even though mm. they have the best mm. intentions. So I hear mm. you with the, the not understanding and Mm. I don't know about you, but to me, when I'm depressed, it makes my world really small because mm. there's just this certain things like these recurring thoughts and these recurring mm. feelings. And it's like, I can barely get out of the mud. I can't think mm. about what's going on way out there. Mm. Um, yeah. I don't know. Do, do you ever feel like that? Like, I feel like my world just goes for me, what I experienced, and I love, I, I'm so grateful for your podcast again, because you see, they're not x-rays, but when we talk to each other and we tell each other, this is how I feel, even if it's not exactly the same, you do start to see some similarities. We're kind of, yes. you're essentially collecting data, you know, because yeah. when I was listening to McBee as well, I was like, oh crap, like I can relate to someone, oh, you know, it's so different yeah. when someone is already living with it. So thank you. Um, For me, what happens, and it's a bit similar to also what happens when I'm hypomanic, I feel like my brain, something slips you know, like, okay. like something slips, like, you know, and, and to give you context, like, remember, and, you know, the ADHD part kind of, you know, I have both combined, though the, the, the hyperactivity has dimmed since Quitipin came into my life, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, in general, I still had a kind of a go-go energy, right? So yeah. now, yeah. because of that, even depression feels like there's a slip, because it's like, you say I could push through with ADHD and anxiety and all these things, yeah. but depression really slowed me down in a way that I'm not used to feeling slow. I, I guess I'm struggling a lot with ADHD and anxiety, but th- this one really slowed me down in a way that was, would feel debilitating. I wasn't able to, you know, for instance, with high school, that one year, maybe if I struggled, it would have been fine. I was hoping I'll learn the system and get better, but I was not getting better. And it was because of depression. Yeah. So I, I feel like I, something is slipping away from me and I can feel myself slipping away. I can feel myself, oh man, I thought, thought we could, we'd have the energy to continue doing this but now here you are you know so now I'm kind of less at less capacity that's how I feel yeah yeah less capacity for mm-hmm. sure and then mm-hmm. I convinced myself like uh uh especially like in high school and I was I was diagnosed really late but um just I felt like people liked me better when I wasn't mm-hmm. depressed so do you know mm-hmm. what I mean like I felt like uh, I wasn't the fun one anymore. I wasn't this mm. or that. And I felt so, even though I'm a huge extrovert and wouldn't naturally retreat, mm. I wasn't retreating because mm. I wanted to be alone. Mm. I was retreating because it was like, I'm not the same. They're going to notice. Mm. They're not going to mm. like me. And mm. it was like reinforced because mm. I would of course get boyfriends when I was like super fun. Right. And, and then I would get depressed and be like, let's just watch TV. And they, and then usually they would Mm. leave right mm-hmm. so it just reinforced mm-hmm. this this whole idea that's that so it's even like a bad thing yeah yeah that, that it's like yeah. even a bad thing M- maybe to touch on that and I love the way the convo is going but I'm sorry do you want to ask a question no 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 you tell me what okay. you're going to say I want to hear yeah so the the bit especially the bit about like it doesn't even have to be romantic but the changing and not it's not changing because you're just bipolar and you yeah. know kind of how it looks to people it's 
It's a behavioral <sighs> change, not who you are, mm -hmm. but be your behavior changes. Yeah, and it's not this thing that, you know, you're, we're pointing out that no one points out, oh, you have a pool, like now you have a pool, like you're coughing. <laughs> well, you know, the, yeah, you don't, you don't really do that. But, but now with this, it's, I feel like sometimes people fall in love with who you are when you're not symptomatic, right? Yeah. They fall in love with that person and they, they, they may not, they may even want to erase the fact that you do struggle with this, you know, just an array of symptoms. Um, and so even when you are, and I, and I remember you shared this, that your doctor was like, but you're doing well in school. What do you mean you could have a condition, yep. right? But even now moving away from the clinical, you know, community, just friends and, and family and people who like you, romantic yeah. interest, it's, it's like, for me, even the way like, yes, I have all this, you know, try to just curate a level of success and accomplishments, which I love just pursuing these things. And they're, they're tools for activism. They're very intentional, yes. but they're tied to activism. At the end of the day, though, I can fall in love with the high-performing me. I'm comfortable calling myself high-performing. It's intentional. I pursue it. I love it. It's something I dreamed about when I was seven and eight, yeah. trying to manage symptoms. So I love the life that I have. But you can tell that someone isn't prepared to see you not looking like that to see you and you don't know that bipolar for me set in and it's just been chronic and you know I don't know if you've had this experience but we could be on meds but you can just feel you know that you're yeah. still it could still be getting worse right but you know the meds are slowing down the process so it's like are you comfortable knowing that I could be this way for months at a time right um, and so you start to ask, okay, like even in a relationship, are you bringing someone in to not be symptomatic? Earlier on, it was easy to do that. But I think as you accept yourself more, you're like truthfully speaking, the same way you know you're getting into a relationship with someone with a chronic illness or a long-term illness that you can see, you're getting to a relationship with someone who is managing multiple illness and my life is structured a certain way that may not be so fun all the time, you know? I, I have to you know, get help with this or put a pause on this when I'm going through that. So I think it's harder in the younger years because um, you don't know what's going on and you start to apologize even for being that. You avoid even being symptomatic and you can't avoid being symptomatic. You, you, you don't control it, right? But you hate yourself each time you are because it's like, I'm failing these people and now they won't yeah. like me or there's something wrong with me. People, right? There you go, yeah. 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 Wow, yeah, you, you're exactly right. So- you're in this depression. So when was your first hypomanic? Because you're, you're mm -hmm. bipolar, you have bipolar yes, yes, disorder. Yes. Yep. Um, when yep. was your first hypomanic symptom or symptoms or um, how did you cut, like how was your experience coming out of that depression? I'd love to hear that. Okay, so yeah, I'll start with the depression and then, you know, we can talk about yeah. hypomania. Um, so for the depression, wow, I love the way you said coming out of it. I think it stayed for a long time. I got medicated, what, in 2020? In 2020. So that first bout of depression dragged on, I think, throughout the rest of high school. Um, um, yeah, and the, the, when it started, I think I told you I had my, my attempt when I was 16, I think now the following year. And there's something about, you know, not knowing what's going on or, I mean, I did, I knew I had an illness, but like now you're inside it. Now you're understanding why it's not situational, it's chronic, right? Uh, there'd be brief moments, like brief moments where I feel like I have energy and I, I feel I do have rapid cycling bipolar. So like September to okay. like March, you know, rapid, September to like March is like, okay, okay. Then you have like a brief period for like two, three months. And then, you know, September is kind of back, right? Um, so it, it, it dragged on with varying intensity, I'll say, because after my attempt, you know, you 
put yourself together you you you're like okay now you're done now, now you you had your chance you know the depression you had your chance you need to stop but it doesn't because it's an illness right um you're not making it happen so i think it dragged on through you know um my second year in high school then by my third one it was just kind of getting worse uh those are some zombie years that i don't remember so well if i'm being honest and by the time i was moving now into my third year i was like something has to change and it has to be the environment i think even the course load moving from five to 12 subjects was a lot right and i truly feel if i did not have bipolar <laughs> it was fortunate enough to not have bipolar and just had adhd and anxiety i probably would have cracked that system but this was too much, too fast, and then bipolar came in. I think I would have still crafted him quite resilient and everything, but bipolar is the game changer. It's the one that was like, okay, this is a lot more than, than I can handle. Um, so again, in, in my third year, I just requested for a switch yeah, to change to another school because I knew, like instinctively knew, the problem here that is dragging on the depression is they're not doing well in school. I am yeah. not doing well in school because I'm struggling with ADHD yeah, now more than ever. Circle, right? Like exactly, cycle. exactly. So now it's understanding what could be triggering what. Um, and at this time, I'm too even depressed to have, I'm, I'm not even having panic attacks. It's just really like we're struggling with school, we're depressed. So I requested for a switch and I knew in, I was intentional, like the school I went to, I knew we'll have fewer students in a class and they're probably ahead of syllabus. So I'm going to get drilled. Like they're going to kind of make me master questions again. Um, so when I moved there, I remember there was a brief period where I was like, this school is going to fix me, right? The move should fix me. Mm-hmm. And I remember that awareness um, towards the end of now my third year, I just felt, oh, you're still there. You know, I remember feeling, oh, you're... you're Oh, you're still there you didn't go okay so acceptance i was like okay um and around the same time i was diagnosed with adenomyosis i'm not sure you're familiar with it yes i, didn't, yeah, I don't so. have and but i know yeah. people it is brutal yeah and girl like i i, I just wasn't winning okay oh. <laughs> honestly it was such a hard time and remember like i'm in boarding school <laughs> yeah, I'm in boarding so school. so you know, was your if you don't mind me asking no your, worries. Your attempt, was it before yeah. you moved schools or um, like before you moved schools? It was before, it was before. And then just for our listeners, because people are always asking, and mm-hmm. I know it's so misunderstood and misrepresented. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, that whole, I just want to break that stigma of the whole, you know, we didn't, we would have never known. And just this idea that <laughs> um, it's a certain look right? Mm, like suicide mm, ideology, mm, ideation, it has a certain look. Mm, what could you, if it's not too much, and let me know if it is, mm, could you give mm, us a glimpse into kind of what you were thinking um, at that time? Because, mm, and maybe just, um, you know, what people could, someone that loves someone, what they mm, might see. Because I think that people just assume that it's someone who, you know, experiences depression by just, you know, staying in bed, looking visibly sad all the time. Looking, mm. And I just feel like that's not the case, especially with like high achievers mm. or I hate this term, but it's the one we use, right? The high functioning, high functioning doesn't yeah. mean better, doesn't mean mm. better, but <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? The, yeah. Yeah. I'm curious if you could give us some insight into, into yeah, mm. what you were thinking or um, what that might have looked like for you just to help our mm-hmm. other folks. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, actually, it's so interesting that um, when I was in high school, I used to journal a lot. I discovered journaling as a way, I call it bleeding through my pen because I had a lot of 
you know, mm, things. Yeah. So that's one way I, I would say I was navigating that. And actually, I did a whole article on my site that I talk about. It's called Suicide is Not a Dirty Word, and I lay it all out in there. Oh and my <laughs> you send it to me. I'm going to link it. I sure will. And, and, and I, you know, it, it's like I went from taboo to online and, and that article is actually a journal entry I wrote when I was 16. So usually wow. like when I, you know, yeah, when I tell a friend about that, they're like, and you were 16, you, you had this much pain <laughs> when you were 16. And especially my friends who have kids, it's like, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, it's like, it hurts. But um, I will say this, and this is where my loop, my circle of the comorbid yeah. conditions comes in. So for me, there's been the complex trauma, like that, that's been for a majority of my life, especially in my formative years. So now I think this would be specific to me because I, I know not everyone, not everyone who has bipolar, you can still have bipolar even if you don't have complex trauma. Like it's not because of yeah. trauma. The yeah. same even for me, whether or not I had it, like obviously trauma, those are environmental factors that contribute to the genetic predisposition that now trigger your first episode, right? But even someone without trauma could still develop that. I really like saying that because I know there's some practitioners who are hell-bent on curing us. They believe we will cure bipolar after we resolve all yeah. our traumas, right? Yeah. Um, so for me, honestly, the, ma the majority of my trigger was kind of reaching a breaking point um, in terms of my ability to stomach that level of trauma. And remember, the, the, uh, bipolar weakened my ability. It really weakened my ability to be as resilient as I've been since I was a kid, right? It was messing up my my go-getter kind of thing, my, I, I'm on my journey, I can pass through all that stuff. Um, everything that I am right, I still am right now, but it just messed up with that. So because I could, you know, I, I was struggling to, you know, manage the trauma, the ongoing trauma um, while still this happening, I think I, I felt tired. I felt kind of like broken. I started crying a lot. Like for me, I don't even cry. Let me tell you some of the worst things may have happened like when I was in my, in, you know, when I was seven or eight, I do. I just wouldn't cry. So yeah. the fact that I had these crying spells and it's crying, you're even observing yourself like, okay, this is too much. Yeah. <laughs> we don't cry, okay? Um, so I think that for me was, was something that was, you know, was coming up. And and then I just the intrusive thoughts around ideation were more like, I think it would be a little bit easier if I wasn't here. I'm also tired. Like this is a lot. <laughs> yeah. I'm dealing with a lot. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a it's like a dam that's kind of what do they say the dam is broken or something like yeah, it's just an yeah. over rushing yeah like rushing exactly so for me it was even like is that can I like stop it I feel I feel I feel tired and I feel overwhelmed so like can I stop it so in terms of what other people may be able to see I honestly think I may not have an answer for that because yeah, I was very enough. yeah I mean I mean but now I'm telling I'm I'm, I, I, I'm using this as an opportunity maybe to share now the comorbidity aspect and how yeah, comorbidity um, and then being still, you know, relatively quite resilient and, and self-aware. I, I was managing it within, but now this happened to be an outward facing thing that now may not make sense to someone else. It's like, where did all this come from? But you were fine. I remember being told I thought you were the strong one, right? So it's like, there's yeah. the, you know, um, where I was <laughs> and I enjoyed being, I would guess, because I was trying to power through and, you know, lead my life. Uh, so I, I think when it comes to that, there's a lot of safety. I will say I like telling people um, living with this illness and especially in a society that has way more stigma than I think most places. Though to be fair, I've, I've read up a little bit also in the West and I think there's still stigma over there, you know. Um, you know, but here it's, 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 you know, it's witchcraft. It's demonic, yeah. you know, warfare. Yeah. It's, I mean, it becomes so spiritual that by the time we even at least, at least, 
at the center where it's a mental health struggle, like that's a stretch, you know, for most people it's way in the, your, you know, devil worshiping culture, generational cuts is kind of wrong. Um, so what would, an, what yeah. would that, so, and, um, sorry, I might, you know, no. squirrel, no my brain's all over. but um, yeah. so with the stigma, so if people are thinking like it's spiritual and possession mm. and these kind of things, mm. so if you were to tell someone that believed that, what would mm. they tell you to do or what do they want to do with that? Are they just like, mm. be quiet or you need to mm. go here or we need mm. to, I don't know, pray over you. Did you have any experiences with someone telling you or what does that look like in your culture? It, yeah, I, I love that. Those are all really good questions. And yes, I experienced that. It was like, you know, um, God has a plan for you. Um, you know, it will come to an end. Uh, you'll be cured. There's that. There's also praying it away. That's a very big one. In fact, it's happening, you know, because maybe you're not praying enough. <laughs> maybe you're not praying enough. And then it could be happening because it, you know, I, I wish they did the angle for the generational cast in a family. I wish it was gener genetic predisposition. That's my yes. vision to switch that, yes. to switch that over to genetic predisposition. Because now the generational cast things makes it seem like someone must break the cast. And the more you guys get sick, shame on you for continuing to get sick. We need to pray over that family. Yeah. So that's you know. So yeah, you do get sometimes you're ostracized. There is silence, by the way, as well. Um. There's there's no. And even for the most educated people, there's no, people don't really lead with or think that there's a clinical, there's a, there's treatment for it. I think there's even stigma towards the psychiatric and, you know, the mental health, the clinical, the psychiatric profession. I do, I have seen that and I'm starting to see a lot, to realize there's a lot of that. Um, and yeah. there are hundred psychiatrists in my country, uh, 100, about like 100 the, or slightly over 100. Yes. And a majority of them are based in the capital city where I live. So a majority is like about 90 in, in one in one county. So you can imagine the rest of the countries underserved. Wow. And the main hospital. So like that's how far back in terms of treatment. And you see, you allocate resources for something you believe, you know. But I think there's a lot of stigma everywhere. Legislators, the people who are pursuing this as a profession, um, their loved ones may stigmatize them for doing that. So there's, there's an... Um, there's a there's a false notion that there may not be enough information and i'm like there is it's a matter of pushing past that kind of cultural conditioning to get the science the science is there you know the science is very much there and we are quick to pick up the science for other things but this one is really lagging behind and so that's why it delays diagnosis and then it really reinforces stigma and i think for me i became such a I really want to look for what fighter is not even a word. I really want to use like a radical word. I just don't know what word to use. Yeah. But I'm with this con the context of this environment because of what I went through myself. Um, the kind of invalidation. Um, and sometimes even rumamongering. You know, you know when you're young and the only story that they had was the attempt. Like that's it. There's no. It could be a symptom about a mental illness that should be managing long term. It's always, they, you know, they pick that one symptom. It's removed. Yeah. All this other stuff is thrown away. Um, including the fact that the same people who are invalidating you could also be creating an environment of trauma. It's like, throw all that stuff away. They attempted suicide. Let's put that up on a mantle, right? Yeah. Let's make that the main thing. And shame. You hope that you can shame someone if you can tell them, do you know who you would have left behind? You know, you're hurting your so-and-so, you know, all that stuff. You even yeah. find yourself apologizing, right? Yeah. And you're the Meanwhile, one nobody the understands that clearly this wouldn't happen if someone wasn't completely hopeless and feeling like nothing would change and mm. then mm. we have suicide survivors 
like mm. it's taken everything to survive and or mm. maybe it just doesn't work then mm. we shame mm. <laughs> these folks that have been through uh, you know traumatized experience and then mm. we wonder why there's a huge percentage of mm. more, than, more than one attempt it's just mm. we have to change and i can imagine if you say there's only a hundred and you say there's a lot of um you know like not really believing in psychiatry or whatever, then it makes sense that a lot of people wouldn't go into that as a profession if it's looked down mm -hmm. upon. So it's just this bizarre cycle. cycle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I want to yeah. hear about, I want to hear about your, we could talk forever. But before yeah. we go, I really want to talk about, hear about your hypomania and mm -hmm. hear about like what brought, because what brought you um to the doctor and the doctor. I would just love to hear how those do you know what I mean like how I want to hear mm -hmm. hypomania and then I want to hear mm -hmm. how you got your uh, official bipolar diagnosis okay really cool that's great so um it took me a while to, after now I started treatment to like now be able to reflect back and think when was the first one depression I remember hypomania it took a while but I think my very first episode happened around 2018 um I went on a trip like a euro trip um and I, I remember feeling kind of like irritable at the start of the trip. Like, I don't know, I've had like time, changing time zones sometimes can do that, but I don't feel like it was a massive time change, but whatever the case, I just feeling a little bit like irritable and it was a bit scary also. So it was a completely new experience. I'd never been on a plane before. I'd never traveled before. So I think it was a bit of a life change. Oh, yeah. um, but, but I remember I cried a lot also. <laughs> I don't know if it was a mixed episode. I can't tell you the 2018 one. I'm not very sure. Yeah. Um, but I, but I, all I know is when I came back from that trip, I went, I, I remember feeling a dip. Like that was the first time it felt, usually in high school when it was a depression, it was my brain kind of slipping away down here. But that one felt like here, you know, it was like, yeah. A, I, yeah. I felt. Drop. So that's why I still feel like I don't know. I don't remember much about like symptoms around hypomania at that time, but I do. I want to suspect that that was the first one. But let's fast forward to I think January 2020. Um, someone that I knew um died by suicide, and that was the first person in my life when I had my attempt. I told them, and they looked at me. You know what it's like to, when someone looks at you who's gone through it, um, so someone who's had an attempt, but even if they haven't had an attempt, you know what it's like to look into the eyes of another person battling bipolar. It's so different. Like yeah. if you had you had to be there. <laughs> so there's a way he looked at me, my 16-year-old self, that those eyes, those eyes understood me and, and I that stayed with me. But now you know he was gone. I think it already found me kind of again just dealing trauma was a trigger, complex trauma became a trigger. Yeah. And I remember kind of that, you know, feeling just irritable and scared. I think there's a mix of anxiety in there. I don't know how they interact during hypomania, but also I, I remember I, it was a bit difficult to work during that time and I just needed to get away. I, I went to Nancy with a friend of mine, but even then I felt like I was kind of amped up. Yeah. <laughs> if I can say that because it wasn't, you know, depression, you're kind of like really slow and stuff like that, but I was really amped up. I feel like I've always had sleep problems. Like I've always just not been able to sleep for longer than like five hours. This is before Quitipin. For the longest yes. time I couldn't. <laughs> before Quitipin. Um, but I really wasn't sleeping. And I, I remember I'd be awake at a certain time. Like I just wake up. I was very good at waking up. I didn't need to stay asleep. So now I, 
So we're talking about in 20, yes, it was a bit more, you know, struggling to sleep and unable to really check into work. And it was completely disruptive in a way. You see with depression, I'd learned how to work through it, to mask it or just survive through it a bit more. But this one was a bit, you know, in a span of like four days, I think January 2020, it was a bit, you know, up and up. Um, yeah, so I think that was the second one that I can remember. Um, and then finally, like around July, July 2020, I I remember I had my first, now I understand it was a mixed episode. Um, okay. And there was just a, a massive trigger. Like, I think I received some really shocking news, I remember. And, you know, I, I remember feeling like my body couldn't contain it, couldn't contain it. And in general, I don't even struggle with anger issues. I'm very... I think resilience and discipline kind of just make you process emotions a little bit faster. Um, that's just one way I manage that, the, the chronic illness. But now at that point, it felt like a little bit of like irritability. And I'm like, whoa, this is really shocking and it hurts. And I just couldn't regulate the way I normally would. And I worked so hard to regulate, but it was just, this one wasn't working out. And so I remember, I think I was working at the time and now I was like, I needed to work on this particular project that was not related to my work and I hyper-focused on it. I was like there, I was like, it has to be done right now. I'm doing my mind maps. I think it was something around like a feminist project for a, a Pan-African, I don't remember, but it wasn't related to the work I was doing. You know, right now, yes, I'm working on multiple things, but I know when to stop, I know when to transition. So that was really, hyper -focus, right? focus just- Exactly just it has to be that thing then I think um it just amped up again I, I think it was still four days and I wasn't sleeping I'd be I'd sleep at 12 and wake up at three like clockwork and I wake up with panic attacks I wake up I go to the toilet I really need to so it's really bad so this is the first time I also realized like hypomania really triggers panic attacks in a very bad way for me it's all it's panic attacks for me are physical it's not just it's not paranoia it's yeah you know our body is on high alert we're struggling and then, so that was just predominantly now the hypomania. Now, as the depression set, and I felt the dip, right? I felt the dip, but now it's like it was the dip, but the mania isn't gone, and then the panic attack is in there. And I remember one particular morning, I woke up at 3 a.m. Um, I remember I just went to the loo, and I sat there, and I was like, you know, <laughs> I'm holding myself, I'm struggling to breathe, and I'm just like, I can't stop it. And then I remember I went and sat on my bed, and it was everything at the same time. So it's racing thoughts, like lots of them. And like the the heavy breathing and and just you know panting and thinking I'm gonna die, thinking I'm gonna die because my heart is yeah. beating so fast. And then I was ideating at the same time. I did not even know that was possible. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um. And and so because I'd been battling ideation for such a long time up until that point, about eight years, uh, like more actively, I I remember thinking whoa I need to see someone. I remember in that moment thinking like I need to see someone. But before actually before that I remember thinking. I can understand why they say like bipolar has one of the highest suicide rates. Like yeah. when you're in, a, in the midst of a mixed episode, you're not even really trying. I, I think you're not really trying to die. Like the plan kind of I'm yeah. gone with the depression. With the mixed episode, it's like there's so much going on up here. I describe it as, remember the cloud I told you? For yeah. me, mania is like lightning now. It's lightning yes. bolts. It's just lightning yeah. bolts. Like still the cloud, but lightning bolts. So I remember feeling like I understand. Like I, I just wanted to stop. I wouldn't be... I wouldn't be ending my life because I, I because maybe I'm really tense sometimes I think about it. It's because I just want all of it to stop. And so I was like, you know what? I need to see someone. And like, that's now when I decided to like go see a psychiatrist. And it's yeah. insane because I'd been seeing a therapist for a while. I had health insurance. I don't know why the psychiatrist was never on the table. And again, I'm a bit sad to know that, you know, people will, call, will, will be, yes, like we'll have the title clinical psychologist, but I realized there's, it's more about trauma, like they're not familiar with, you know, with 
with diagnosis like bipolar, understanding the prodrome enough to flag, you've been seeing me for depression for two years, could it be something more? And I took myself to my psychiatrist. So yeah, that's that's how I ended up going to their psych. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of people ask like, well, I, I'm uh, like, I, I get a ton of messages. Like I am relating to what you're saying. I am relating mm-hmm. to your guests, um, this community, but how do I talk to my doctor about it? Because nowadays, right, because of Google and everything and mm-hmm. sometimes, and I'm not speaking for all doctors, but mm-hmm. here it's called a general practitioner. So it's mm-hmm. like general. So there isn't, yes, mm-hmm. there's training in mental health, mm-hmm. health and mental illness, mm-hmm. but not mm-hmm. like, I feel like not for some of the more what they consider severe mental illness, mm, like mm. bipolar. And we go for help more when we're depressed, right? So what mm. I tell people and tell me if you would agree is mm. make sure that you talk about the hypomania or the highs and not just mm. the lows. And especially with mm. bipolar too, because it's more mm. known more for low low lows Mm. if you can't get diagnosed if you haven't talked about uh, the fluctuation Mm. right otherwise Mm. you will just get keep getting diagnosed with depression Mm. in in my opinion I was uh, I can't even tell you how many antidepressants I went on and how many it was always about the depression for 15 Mm. years because I thought the other part was just I it was just me and it was so even though I wouldn't admit the terrible parts of it. It was, mm. it felt so much better to me personally mm. um, than the depression that it mm. didn't register that there was still a, mm. still a problem. And so I, mm. I tell, I tell people like track it or tell about the whole spectrum of your moods. Mm. Otherwise, uh, do you think that, do you, do you think that's helpful? First of all, I completely agree. And for me, I'm taking it a radical step or two further. Yes. Here's the thing. You know, um, if you let's say you wouldn't know about math and algebra if you didn't step in school. Like someone who didn't go to school would know that yeah. stuff, right? So my thing is the practitioner should be driving psychoeducation. They should be driving it always. It should not be your burden. And even when they were giving you depression, like the antidepressant, it wasn't clearing, they should always be seeking a differential diagnosis. For everyone who presents with chronic depression, you should always be thinking, could this be, could they be in the program of bipolar? That is not something you need to, you, you, that's not something you might know. They should be knowing that. They do know that. They just, I, I don't know if they, they think that you, you, you're inept, you won't understand. I'm starting to think that could be, because at least for psychiatrists, I don't know. I want to believe they know, because I don't know how they don't know. But differential diagnosis is so important. It's extremely important. Because imagine you have bipolar and ADHD, right? But maybe we see ADHD. You put me on a stimulant. I'm not taking an antipsychotic, okay? I'm going to get manic. I put you on antidepressants for a long time. You're going to get manic. Yeah, that's <laughs> and what when you're manic... Exactly. You don't even know what mania is. You know, depression, at least you can say like, yeah, you've been seeing. You don't know. You don't know. And sometimes you're not even aware enough. For me, it's because I've been studying. I've been observing myself for such a long time that I'm able to like talk about symptoms from years ago. Not everyone has had the privilege. Education afforded me that. Even maybe some level of intellect. Not everyone, not all of us are looking the same. So it's almost like saying you need to be you need to be educated, you need to be able to observe your symptoms and you're going through them, then you come and tell me. So, and you're going to pay that doctor, man. You know, those things hurt me. Because um, even if you're seeing a counselor, that for me now, even like the education should be higher. The onus is on you. Have a knowledge base of mood disorders, of psychiatric illnesses, schizoaffective disorder, personality disorders, eating disorders. You are the one who's supposed to be studying. A counselor is like a nurse. If a, if a nurse needs to understand like human anatomy, 
they need to be understanding the clinical side. Psychiatrists always consider differential diagnosis. Ask me about patient history. I remember after my attempt, uh, my principal as I was leaving the first school, that's the first time anyone ever asked me that question. He said, is there a history of suicide in your family? I didn't even know about patient history. But that was such an important question because as I dug a little bit deeper, it turns out that that cousin of mine had bipolar. But that was ages ago, like, but no one also talked about it, okay? No one also talked about it. And I found out another relative had been in hospital for a whole year in a psychiatric hospital. Like, wow. other families can enforce stigma, but this one, I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> There's too much evidence, right? But the silence. So a doctor, like, I don't remember anyone even asking me about patient history um, yeah. that early on. That's a problem. Because at the very least, even for you, you'll start thinking, maybe asking some questions. But if the burden is on you from the jump, I think it's so unfair. And this illness in particular, yeah. they get away with it more than any other illness, right? Yeah. They get away with it. Because when you go in, you're like, I'm having a cough. I need you to figure it right now. The doctor's going to figure it out. They're going to give you a couple of tests, okay? Yeah. They're going to yeah. give you a couple of tests until they get it because they know they're active. There's some onus. But with mental illness, why aren't you getting a screener? Why aren't we thinking, okay, she's depressed, MDD. Okay, could it be, you know, um, bipolar? Okay, is it probably like ADHD? Let her just take the test. The tests don't don't make you sick. I think that's another problem. They think if they, we can't handle, you know, the diagnosis. You can't handle the terms, okay? But it's like the idea of flat effect or all these terms. I think it's anhedonia. What else do we go through um, with hypomania, racing thoughts? They mean nothing to you as a practitioner, but for me, they mean everything because I didn't know the name. Pressure yeah. switch. I didn't know the name, right? So for me, I'm like, yeah, take it a step. They need to be the owner. They need to be doing a lot more than they're doing, and the exactly. resources are there to do them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And there needs to be more, like more training. Like if it is something, the numbers are so high that we're losing people, but we're focusing all on physical illnesses. Uh, and I don't know if you know here, but um, it is free in Canada, but I am telling you that does not make it better. You, we mm. have, don't have, we have way more psychiatrists than, than mm. you do in mm. your country, but mm. it's a year and a half waiting list. I, I've been reading about that and I, I'm concerned. <laughs> I'm yeah, concerned. right? So your choices, and this was the only choice I had, you can go to your GP, which generally, mm-hmm. and some know about it, but generally mm-hmm. they don't have um, you know, uh, uh, broad and deep knowledge. Mm, mm. And so you go there and uh, they're hesitant to prescribe you with heavy duty, mm. you know, medication, mm. or you go to emergency. That's the only way to see a psychiatrist. Mm. I, I wasn't in a place where I needed to go to emergency, but there was no mm. other choice. Mm. There was no other choice. And then everybody, there's the whole thing, of everybody being afraid mm. to go to the hospital. But mm. I think like, uh, and even in, I mean, it's getting better. My daughters, they mm-hmm. talk about things in their schools. My daughter did mm-hmm. a presentation on bipolar and she wasn't nervous wow. about it or shy mm-hmm. or, and she even said my mom, and you know, in those mm-hmm. years, you care what people think. I think yep, yep. better, but there needs to be so much more training because if you're putting the onus on the patient, we're mm-hmm. like, sometimes we're not even rooted in reality to be able mm-hmm. our brain is lying to us. This is, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? And so then yep. for us to be able to take a step back and be like, mm-hmm. Oh, I wonder what this is. I'm just on this roller coaster. I'm not mm-hmm. writing down symptoms. I'm mm-hmm. like trying to survive. Mm-hmm. And so I agree with you. I agree with you, you know, change. And it's, mm. that's why um, I have a lot of amazing listeners that love someone with bipolar disorder. And that's where mm. we need neurotypical mm. people that don't have mental illness to come mm. alongside us because we are managing mm. our illness. Not mm. all of us 
can get mm. to a place where we can um, be activists mm. or be um, advocates, right? And mm. so, yeah. Or even work and, and, and an income, that's true. Yeah, yeah. And there is no judgment. Like bipolar mm. affects people in all different ways. And it doesn't mean, that's why I wish we could get rid of high functioning because mm. it's not better. Or even there mm. is a lot of folks that say, oh, I wish I had bipolar two and not bipolar one. It isn't mm. better, different. Mm. Yes, mm. but it isn't better. And I don't like how we do this hierarchical mm. stuff, right? Because I believe this high functioning that people talk mm. of made mm. my life for like 15, 17 years a lot mm. harder mm. if if I was quote unquote low functioning, right? Mm. So anyways, I get all up in arms about all of those things because it's, mm. and mostly it's because I look like I sometimes I feel like intense and angry, but mostly it's because mm-hmm. my heart is breaking mm-hmm. for those I relate. suffering in silence. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for even finishing that part. Cause that, that's the, um, that's the thing. It, it, it's, it's sort of misplaced anger. You see, um, as you're kind of taking your time, deciding when you'll introduce the screener, when you'll tell me you bring in the DSM-5 or sometimes you never bring it. I didn't see one for a very long time until I started, you know, so many psychiatrists. When you're taking your time with that, we we are living this. We know how many people we are losing. And and what hurts, it's not even a, the fact that we're, what hurts the most is that we know it's avoidable. If we yes. just got the information as soon as possible, that stuff hurts. And that's why, you know, anger is a good driver in terms of even educating myself. Like for me, I was like, I'm angry, I'm going to study. When I got, I saw the first psychiatrist and I went and I saw the second one just to confirm. But I'm telling you, Shali, I read for two and a half weeks. I was working at the time because I needed to make money to pay for everything. Yeah. But And I was working through mania, right? So I, I read so much. I read everything I could get my hands on, side effects of medications, half-life, you know, discontinuation symptoms, just everything I could about comorbidity. So that I could ask questions. I remember I was crying and depressed in the hospital. I had read up on bipolar, but she gave me medication and I told her, no, you need to tell me what's this medication for? What's my diagnosis? What symptoms have you seen? I knew, but I was like, you need to tell me. But you see, 10 minutes, here's some meds, go. What, what, I mean, you see for us, we can see them at any time. Um, and mostly if you can afford private healthcare, you can book appointments, but you're there paying that money and you want to yeah. see me for 15 minutes and not tell me anything detailed. And they'll say, your therapist will tell you, your therapist is like, ask the doctor. And even after I've had seen you for once or twice, you need to get out that DSM-5, you need to go look at the classes of SNRIs, classes yeah. of antipsychotics, yeah. you need to start thinking of alternatives. So I'm going to ask my psychiatrist, now I experienced discontinuation syndrome when I was getting off my antidepressant the first time. And that, that was an amazing antidepressant. In fact, it was also anti-anxiety medication. Fantastic. And it was time to get off of it because, you know, I, I, I was getting better and we needed to move to a mood stabilizer so I don't get manic. Well and good. But you're supposed to educate me on what it's like getting off. And, and I remember they were like, oh, you sound manic. I'm like, listen, I'm holding you accountable for not preparing me. You have the information. I'm lucky that I could look it up, process yeah. it, you know, because well, I've been doing what I've been doing. that you're like, that is your passion or whatever I couldn't exactly. I couldn't read about it like I <laughs> it would make it worse for me to, yes to read about I I mean I could after like a couple years but yeah yeah about it because it was so doom and gloom and I couldn't find anybody telling a story um, yeah uh, you know of living alongside yeah uh, uh, bipolar disorder but you were right it is not curable but the, yeah. the hope I have is that it is treatable. Treatable, right? I like can, that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For yeah. Sure. I am wondering before um, we wrap up, 
first. Mm -hmm. Is there anything on your heart that you would just feel that you need to share? And then to um, end, I would love to hear some um, word of encouragement to someone that's either, uh, you know, in the darkness right now or high, high. Um, what would you you say is just a just a word of comfort not mm. a you know I know you and I know you wouldn't be toxically positive mm. but just mm. a, <laughs> something from someone else that understands so if mm. you have any burning things to say and then mm. if not could you share something comforting with us okay cool um let me start with the thing i'd like to say and then finish with something comforting um i'm i'm happy you know we've been able to touch a little bit about the the standard of care that is needed and i really i mean clarion call to whoever is listening we need, we need, you know, we need practitioners to do so much more. As you said, not everyone will be able to study. Again, I'm so fortunate that I could study. I mean, I read research papers before I go see my doctor because yeah. I want to level with them. I want to make sure I'm asking all the right questions. But how many people can actually do that? So it's really unfair if you have the capacity. I know you're not even with the illness and then there's no urgency because maybe you also think it's curable. You're doing a disservice to us because we're coming to you and we're paying, we're paying money to see you, money that we may not have, right? Yeah. So go, go beyond, go beyond on understand medications when i come to see a clinical psychologist as a person with comorbidity and bipolar adhd you need to lead with psychoeducation you need to make psychopharmacology reviewing our meds side effects long term you need to make that a regular thing not as sometimes which you should drive it um so that yeah the standard of care needs to improve and i hope people hear that and um for the patient the person living with it um the word of encouragement is first of all you're not alone uh, you're really not alone. I, I am well versed and informed. I am as I am right now. But I remember after my attempt, I remember I went online to just share like schizophrenia. I get on Google and then post it and then do the smoothie photos like black and white. And I dreamed of a day when there would be freedom to talk about these things on online. And that's why for me, like your page is like I, I remember I was telling a friend like I was kind of emotional that we'll be doing this because I was like I would have wanted to see you know, this is bipolar, like, and people talking, people talk about their symptoms in your comment section, like, you know, it's nothing, and I love that, so just, you are not alone, you're really not alone, you're, you're worthy, you have choices, you're not a basket case, you should not be feeling lucky because someone listening, you get to choose, you have so much dignity and power, um, more, more than you know, and, and, um, I love the way Charlie said that the hope of treatment for me, I held on since I was seven, and I was like, someday, someday I'll get like that, there's a thing that will click. Meanwhile, let me study my brain. I know I'm falling, I'm struggling, but someday I'll get it. And for me, medication helped me create my miracle. It wasn't a magic pill, but it helped me create my miracle. So I want to ask you to just give yourself a, a fighting chance. If you are thinking you need to see someone, if you think you, you need medication, you validate yourself. It's you. You get to decide throughout. You are in charge. So I feel like that's what I would tell the person listening. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah dignity right you yeah. yeah so often we're so vulnerable because we're second guessing ourselves mm. that, that is really really beautiful um thank you so much for all the work that you do for the person that you are it brings me such comfort that you are here and you are still here um, I, yeah, I am in awe of, of your presence and just, um, yeah, it just excites me that you were out there on the front lines representing for, um, us bipolar folk and 
of four others too with the ADHD mm -hmm. and such. Mm -hmm. I think that that's something um, really misunderstood. I love that you talked to just the um, having more than one diagnosis or the comorbidity. Mm -hmm. So thank mm -hmm. you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much also for having me and just creating a room for me to be a patient. This is really very rare for me um, to talk about this in this way. Um, and I'm grateful for your podcast because it also gave me the room to to start exploring hypomania. You know, um, I was afraid of it. So it uh, it's given me room to do that. So thank you. Yeah. Oh, you are so, so welcome. Well, friends, this is Bipolar. If you want to hear more, go and follow our friend Wei Rimu and she is open to messages I know that and also um, if you're someone you know I've been talking about this Patreon that I am going to start um, I am going to have an added going deeper conversation and I'm going to ask more questions and so if you want to hear that I suggest you sign up for the Patreon and you will get to hear more of our conversation thank you for being here Thanks again for tuning in. You can find video versions of This Is Bipolar on our YouTube channel. We also have all our previous and soon-to-be future episodes of the podcast on Apple, Podbean, Spotify, and Google Play. We spend most of our time on Instagram at this.is.bipolar. There is a vibrant community there where we have conversations and post different ideas and different strategies and we'd just love for you to join us there. It is so helpful if you enjoy our work or think it would be helpful to someone if you could like and share and save and follow us in all or any of those spaces. If you're a listener for the podcast, if you could leave a review, we would be forever grateful. Again, thank you for being here with us. Let's get the word out. Let's share lived experiences so that we can change the ideas that people have about bipolar and help those of us that live with it feel less alone. This is bipolar.